Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And something that's been receiving a fair bit of attention lately is the issue of cognitive bias in forensic science. It's a complex issue and one that forensic disciplines are thinking about more and more, but there hasn't been a lot of work done in the area of forensic toxicology. But someone who has been doing some work in this area is Hilary Hamnett, Senior Lecturer in Forensic Science at the University of Lincoln in the UK. Hilary, welcome to the Toxpod. Hi. Nice of you to join us. Why don't you start off by telling us a bit about your background, how you came to be involved in forensic toxicology and uh, in your position now? Yeah, so um, I started off, my first degree was chemistry, and uh, I kind of always wanted to do forensic science, but I'm sufficiently old that this was before there was a plethora of forensic science degrees. So there was really only one or two at the time that I was looking to go to uni. So I did chemistry instead, and then I uh, did the master's at at Strathclyde. Um, And in the master's, we did loads of different disciplines, and it was really the talks that appealed to me. A lot of people didn't like it because they were used to kind of more straight yes or no answers. You know, is this a match or is it not? And I really liked talks because it was so um, nuanced and, you know, it could be this or it could be that, or there's several explanations for this, and we can't say that this is definitely there. And that really appealed to me. So that's kind of how I got into talks. Um, and my first job was at the Forensic Science Service, which is probably knows now gone, uh, which was our UK-wide government-run service. Uh, and that was in the drug driving team. So we just did drug driving prosecutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when that closed, I went um, briefly to Australia, where I worked at the University of Queensland as a postdoc. And then I went to ESR in New Zealand. And it was really there that I got interested in um, cognitive bias. So we had a Brian Found, who's now sadly no longer with us, but he came to give a talk about cognitive bias in in document examination and the title of the talk didn't really look that interesting I've got to say but when he came he was such an evangelist for it and he came and and he was such a good speaker and he really drew me into the whole idea and I kind of realized at that point that I was one of the worst offenders in the lab for uh, cognitive bias and so I've now become like the ex-smoker of cognitive bias going around trying to get people to, to not fall into the same traps as me but at ESR we did a lot more different kinds of talks so we did a lot of it is post-mortem, but we also did, uh, you know, more like drug-facilitated sexual assaults and and uh, homicides and, and that kind of thing, alcohol um, certificates for driving and stuff. And then I came back to the UK and I um, initially went to Glasgow, where I worked um, at the university there where they do all the post-mortem talks. And that was very different uh, to New Zealand, where probably, I don't know, 50 to 80% of the cases in New Zealand were negative. And then in Glasgow, it was the opposite. So almost everything was positive. So it was a really interesting place to work as a toxicologist because there's more of a drug problem there. Uh, And then I went to Imperial College, uh, which is in central London, and worked there. Uh, And then eventually I came to the University of Lincoln. So you've had quite a broad experience in toxicology, so it's good to see you come from a firm base to help us learn about cognitive bias. So why don't we start with what exactly is cognitive bias? So, um, I mean, it's a whole area in itself, like people do whole modules on it in their psychology degrees. But very broadly, it's how information we learn about the case affects the scientific decisions that we make. So we like to think that we're always making a purely scientific decision. But often um, information that we've learned that has nothing to do with science. So it could be about, you know, the the age of the deceased, let's say, in a postmortem case or their ethnicity or, you know, something about their background. It kind of creeps in to that scientific decision making and we're not aware that it's happening. So it's very much an unconscious effect. And this is the whole thing of bias is something that everyone experiences or everyone uses every day, actually, in their day to day life that sort of helps us survive. We we might go fishing where we 
we've caught a fish before, for example, or something like that. So that's a sort of a form of a, a decision based on your past experience or your impressions or your knowledge. So yeah. it's a natural thing that humans do, but in our field or any forensic field, we have to sort of filter that out and try and prevent ourselves doing it or have mechanisms in place to stop it, I guess. Yeah, it's very much a fundamental part of the way our brains work as humans. So we can't kind of um, you know, tell ourselves we're not going to be biased. And people do say to me, I'm not biased, you know, I can't. And it, but it's just if you're human, then you're biased. And like you say, um, it's very much a useful thing that we have. But uh, we've just got to be careful about the way we manage it. Um, and, and I always talk about bias minimizing rather than bias eliminating because you can never eliminate it. But we can put some steps into minimize its impact. Yeah, that's an interesting thing about cognitive bias. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've produced a wrong result. It just means that you've gone about producing that result by the wrong method. You've taken into account information which shouldn't have been. You might still arrive at the right result, perhaps, but next time you might not. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's not about an error, if you like. And people, that is really easy to get confused between bias and error. So it's not about saying if you make a biased decision, you are going to come out with the wrong outcome at all. It's about saying we want to make our decisions based on science. And we want to arrive at the correct decision in the scientific way rather than in a way that uses, you know, hearsay or assumptions that we make about people. And in the late um, uh, 2000s, there was a, a few reports that came out that highlighted that often forensic labs aren't looking at bias very closely and that we should start examining it a bit more. Yeah, so that was a report from the US um, that looked at, particularly in the US system, where the, the police work very, very closely um, with the forensic scientists. And in other countries, there's, there's more of a separation, I guess. But in the US, it was it was identified as being a big problem. Um, and there was a kind of a call put out that said people need to start looking at this. Um, but I think in, in talks, we've been a bit slow to get onto it. So lots of other fields of, of pattern matching fields, particularly. So things like fingerprints and tool marks and handwriting have been quite quick and, and as toxicologists we've been a little bit slow uh, I think to get on to this and I completely understand why because we you know we have the idea that machines are doing a lot of the work for us so you know it's basically analytical chemistry and surely that's objective and how can that be affected by bias and, and I used to, to buy into that very much um, but if you kind of look at what we do as toxicologists a lot of it is quite subjective and we do also do pattern matching so we do compare spectra and make a decision about whether you know how much they match or how similar they are. So there's a lot of talk in um, the literature about task relevant and task irrelevant information. That's a bit of a controversial thing in itself. Who decides what information is relevant? How do you make that decision? Could there even be cognitive bias in that decision? Yeah. So I think what's task relevant and, and task irrelevant is not a a decision that you can kind of say in every case this is not going to be relevant and this is so in pattern matching fields what they do is often just lock all the information away and and that's quite an easy solution if you literally just lock it in a safe and say only certain people can see it or you can see it but it has to be after but for us our relationship with the information is is much more nuanced so sometimes we need it and sometimes we don't and I in talks I like to talk about when you need the information rather than whether or not it's relevant so, you know, we will often need the information, possibly relevant information um, to the scientific decision. But when we come to interpret that, we are going to need that information. But there are other stages in the process where I don't think we do. So if somebody, for example, is, is deciding whether there's a match between the, stand, the drug standard and the sample, I don't think that person needs to know information about, you know, the deceased's sexuality, let's say 
or their age or their name. They don't need to know the information um, at that point, but perhaps later on in the process, you would need that information. And at the start of the process as well, sometimes we need it and sometimes we don't. So when you're thinking about what tests to do, depending on your process in your lab or, you know, what machines you've got available to you, how much sample you've got, you might need the information to make a prioritization decision or you might just be able to put it through your kind of normal process. So it's really, it's a tricky thing to do. And it's very much has to be done on a lab by lab basis because everybody's processes are different and everybody has different ways of doing things. And I guess uh, whatever you do do at the beginning of the process, you have to justify it in some manner, record why you chose to do a set of tests and not the other set of tests, for example, just yeah, to demonstrate. Yeah, really, um, really important. Um, and there is some evidence that if you make people actually sign their name next to their decision, they make less biased decisions. So if they have to really own it and give a reason why they've done something, they kind of think a little bit harder about it. Whereas it's easy to just, if, if it's never going to be traced back to you, it's quite easy just to make a, a quick biased decision. You've highlighted in some of your um, work, there's three main areas in toxicology where you can be subject to cognitive bias. And, and I want to come back to that in a minute, those three areas, and look at them in a bit more detail. But do you want to first tell us about some of the work that you've done, the studies that you've done in this area? Yeah, so I've done a couple of, of publications. The first one was a, uh, a really simple survey. So it was at TFT in Brisbane in 2016. And I did two things. So the first thing was just to go around talking to different um, toxicologists who worked in post-mortem tox from diff- all sorts of different countries, asking them what information they received. So what on a you know, general basis, what information did they get from their provider? And they had those all sorts of different options, you know, about what medication they received, um, you know, the circumstances of the death, when they died, blah, 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 whether they'd been in prison, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I asked people what they knew about bias. So how much they were aware of it, had they had any training, could they explain the concept? Um, did their did their lab have a policy on bias, for example? Did they use any bias minimizing procedures? And then I asked them to suggest some bias minimizing procedures specifically for tox. So things that they thought might work, even if they'd never tried them, could this work? And the idea was to produce a list of things that we could try within the within TFT and give it a go and see if it worked in our lab. Um, because I think one of the big problems is that um, if you don't do anything about bias, then you get things come down from on high from people who don't necessarily know anything about our field. And they'll say, you need to do this or you need to do that. So you know, regulators or accrediting bodies will just come up with stuff that isn't really going to work for us. So if we take the initiative and we come up with things that will work for us in our lab, then it kind of avoids that top-down approach. And then the second thing I did, so when I went started talking to people about bias and going to different conferences and talking about it, um, one of the things that people said to me was, well, there's no evidence that it's a problem in talks because we haven't had you know, a really big high profile miscarriage of justice that we could trace back to tops. And there has been these in other fields. Um, And they're very good at kind of concentrating the mind, if you like, on this being a problem. So it was difficult to kind of persuade some people that there was going to be a problem. Um, And so I did an experiment with my um, third year students at the University of Lincoln. They do a a tox module. Um, And I gave them uh, an experiment to do. It was really simple, ELISA. Um, So they just had to kind of say whether it was above or below the cutoff. And they got five cases um, and half the class, there's about 70 in the class, half the class got no information at all and asked to make the decision about whether it was above or below the cutoff. And the other half got potentially biasing information about the case. Um, And they all had to make the same decision using the same data, but without the information or with. 
and it was really interesting to see how the um, how the case information affected their decision making. So you think this is a really simple decision, right? Is it above or below this number? How could that decision possibly be biased? But it was. Um, and what the what the information does is it kind of fills the gap. So if you've got a really tricky decision, like you've got something that's very close to your cutoff, you might think, oh, maybe you know, maybe I should do it, maybe I should not. And the people without the information, uh, a lot of them said. Or maybe I'm not really sure. And then once you gave them the case information, which strongly suggested a certain thing, um, they all just change their mind. So it kind of it pushes them into the scientifically incorrect decision. So that, that's interesting, though, because in some cases, the additional information might actually help you get to the right decision. I mean, if there was a, you know, Eliza's not always correct, there's always that in the back of an analyst's mind. And mm-hmm. uh, if you get a bit of case history, then you might decide to do a further confirmatory test. And like I say, it's it's when it's when the decision is difficult that bias is most problematic, right? So if you've got a really clear cut decision, it's clearly negative, then it doesn't shouldn't really matter what the case circumstances say. If it's clearly negative, it's clearly negative. But if it's right on that borderline, then the case circumstances can be okay. Maybe I'll it, you know it says that they were an IV drug user. Maybe I'll do it if it's like a morphine, let's say morphine analyzer. And I think a better way to deal with that is to say, well, anything that's really close to the borderline, we're just going to confirm anyway rather than getting the case circumstances into it. Because like you say, it's well known that ELISA isn't always right. So, I mean, the best solution would be just to stop using it, right, and use something else. But if you do have to use ELISA, um, then just have a rule that says, if it's really close, we confirm it, no matter what the case circumstances are. And then you're not introducing that bias, but you're still kind of covering off, maybe there's a problem with the assay on this particular occasion. So back in your first study, um, it was interesting that this is the study was conducted back in 2016, I believe. Yeah. You found that only 14% of labs had a, a policy on contextual bias in the laboratory. Do you think that's changed recently? That's a really good question. It'd be a good if we ever have a conference again, it would be nice to do it again and um, and ask people that question. I hope it has, um, particularly organisations where there's there's more than just talks happening. So you know where they've got fingerprints and they've got other pattern matching fields. I would hope that those labs now have them. Probably what what we do have is a lot of unwritten stuff. So we've got people saying we should do something about this and having meetings and making a few notes, but actually formalising it perhaps. Um, be interesting to see how many people have done that. So let's talk about these three main areas that you've highlighted where cognitive bias can creep into tox. So that's in the selection of tests, first of all, and then in the actual analytical work, and then finally in the interpretation of results. And one thing I found really interesting with this selection of tests is this kind of circular reasoning that can creep in where if you're choosing to do tests on a certain population because you think that that population maybe is more prone to have a certain drug there, And then because you're doing the test, you see it a lot more often in that population, which just reinforces that idea in your mind. And it's just this perpetually reinforcing thing. Yeah. So the selection of tests is really interesting because lots of labs now are are moving to like a a broad screen. So they're moving to a TOF or they're moving to, you know, an LCMS screen or something like that and kind of away from that ELISA. But generally, the, the fewer decisions you make at this stage, the less bias you will introduce into the case right at the beginning so if you can just say right we're going to put it through all our regular tests we're going to put it through the broad screen you're not making judgments at that point about who might be using what you're just putting through the same process not all labs work in that way so some labs work on a case-by-case basis and that's kind of when the danger really creeps in because um it's very easy to kind of be like oh well you know that person's under 50 or they're over this or they're under 18 or that you know and people you have all these different rules of thumb that they use all over the world people are using them um, and it's understandable why they do that, right? Because we have to make 
the best use of public money that we can. We can't just squander money on stuff because we don't have it. Um, so we do have that responsibility. Um, and it's not CSI. We can't test everything for every drug ever. So we do have to make some decisions. Um, but I would say if you can move to a broad screen, then you're doing yourself a favour in terms of bias as well as in terms of your, your lab's processes, because something might come up that you weren't expecting or that you wouldn't necessarily associate with someone from that group or someone who's that age or whatever. But there are some circumstances where the choice of tests is going to reveal what you're doing, right? So you probably wouldn't test every case that came in for carboxyhemoglobin. You would probably target that to specific cases. And if you've got down a test for that, then even if you don't tell the analyst what the circumstances are, they can make a guess, can't they? So it's a fire or it's, you know, it looks like it might be a suicide in a car or something like that, hibachi, that kind of thing. So there are some cases where we do have to, to make very specific decisions. Um, and, I'm, and I don't advocate for people not having access to the circumstances. I think we do need access to them at that point. But as I say, if you can stick to a broad screen, then it, it works on lots of different levels. So let's say you have a policy in your lab that you're testing uh, GHB on people who are under 30. I guess that would be perhaps an example that you'd think is using task irrelevant information to make a decision. Is, is that right? Yeah, I would say that unless unless the person, for example, is found with a bottle of GHB next to them or, you know, you know that they have a history, for example, of using GHB. I think these arbitrary age things are, are where there's a problem. Now, if you've got really good peer-reviewed scientific evidence to back up that, um, you know, like they've done, you've done a government survey or something which looks at who is using GHB, then it might be okay to use that. The problem comes when you say, well, in my experience, or, you know, people of that age do this and people of that age don't. It's it's how you, you put these rules into place that really is key. So if you can point to something and you could stand up in court and say, this is justified because of this really good data that shows da-da-da, it's fine to use that kind of rule. So for example, one... Um, article that we actually talked about on the podcast maybe a couple of years ago was an article in Australia about GHB use and how GHB death occurs. And the sort of typical scenario was a young male found at home alone. Uh, so this is, you know, a peer reviewed paper. This is a 10 year study. So are you saying in that kind of instance, if you're targeting those cases, because there is evidence that that is the kind of case where you might expect to find it, that's an example of I guess appropriate bias is that how yeah. you would phrase it? Yeah, because you can't you can't run every GHB on every case because we don't have the resources for that. But like I say, if you can justify it scientifically rather than using a hunch or like a you know vague terms about what you've seen in the past, then then it's appropriate to use it. Yeah. So what about in cases where maybe there's no evidence that it's more prevalent in a particular population? but it might be more significant. Like, for example, we'll stick with GHB, testing drivers for GHB. Perhaps you don't test everyone for GHB, mm -hmm. but you just choose to test drivers because it's a sedating drug and it could be much more impactful if you do find it in those kind of circumstances. Um, I mean, that's a really interesting example because different countries deal with their drivers in very different ways. You know, So some countries will say, we're only wanting to look for these drugs because of the way their legislation is set up. So I think it's it's quite a kind of a niche example, but it is a good example of why you might say, yes, this is more important in someone who's been driving around and then had a crash or something like that than in, in a different type of case where you've got a different cause of death, like a hanging or something like that. But yeah, a lot of places will say, well, once you've got, the police will say, once you've got one drug, we don't need to worry about any other drugs because we've got enough for 
to go ahead with our prosecution. And whether they're positive for two or three drugs isn't going to make a difference to, you know, the way that the, the penalties are handed down or something like that. I guess sure. in that sort of situation as well, it'll be a laboratory policy rather than an individual analyst mm. decision. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's another good way to justify why you do a, a certain yeah. test. Yep. So what about drug identification? This is an interesting area, I think. So say if, uh, for example, there's a low lorazepam, which is in a sexual assault case, for example, and it's below your normal limit of reporting. So you've detected it. It's above your LOD, so you can see it, but it's below your, your lab's limit of reporting. So you could yep. go ahead and extract twice as much urine to get it above your limit of reporting. And mm -hmm. sort of morally, I think analysts would think that they should try and mm -hmm. identify it. But so if it wasn't a sexual assault, maybe if it was a different sort of, maybe if they knew the, knew the case context a little bit better, maybe they might not be inclined to do extra work on it. Mm. I mean, that's a, a nice example, actually. So I think my view is that um, the people in the lab don't need to know the context of the case. When you come to report it, that's when that kind of decision should be made. So when, you, when you've got all the results from the case and you're looking at it, the reporting person is looking at it from a whole. But if you have criteria that say whether or not something is present, then the best thing to do with that criteria is apply it consistently. So once you start picking and choosing where you're going to apply it to and saying, well, it looks like it might be there, but not quite. Maybe I'll just maybe I'll just report it. Maybe actually that is a better match than than it appears initially. But now I know this about the case. I seem to be able to see a stronger match than I did before. <laughs> um, that's when it's really dangerous. So I think if you're going to have criteria, and I'm all in favour of criteria, then you have to apply them consistently. But if you want to pursue something when you get to the reporting stage, um, and you and you're prepared to write down why you want to pursue it and sign it and own it then yes, then I think you could go back and, and do more, particularly in, in a case like that where you had, um, you know, the case was negative. Because you might get to the end and find actually there was a mass of alcohol or something like that that's much more significant than a tiny lorazepam. But that decision, I think, should be made by the experienced reporting person at the end rather than by the person in the lab. And another example might be um, you mentioned pattern matching and you're saying mm -hmm. that's similar to tool marks. And, of course, we use pattern matching in deciding whether a mass spectrum is a match or not. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on that approach? So again, I think that's about having a set of criteria, whether it's to do with a percentage match or whether it's to do with you know, your iron ratios or the particular irons that you want to match, then you just need to have a set of criteria that you decide in your lab and then you apply it consistently across all of your cases. If you decide later on that you want to pursue something, you want to do the test again, let's say, um, then that's okay if it's made right at the end um, by the reporting person. I guess it's also similar to what you said before, when it's a clear-cut match mm -hmm. and when it's a low concentration uh, with a bit of grass around and you can see a few contaminant yeah, yeah. ions and if you can account for those ions then it might be okay, that's mm -hmm. when it starts getting a little bit dubious. Yeah, that's when the, the context um, fills that gap for you. And it says, you know, and in your head you go, oh, actually, no, look, I've looked at it again and it, it is a better match than it was before. But actually, if you showed it to someone else without the context, they might say, actually, that's not a match. So that's the, the real danger. And I think if you think about something really simple, like a blood alcohol for a driver, so they're, they're hugely over the limit. It doesn't really matter whether the police say they were acting sober, does it? You know, they're massively over the limit. It's really clear cut. It's when you've got something like your DFSA case and, and it's really, you're not sure whether it's there or not, that then it becomes more of a problem. So I would say in a lot of the time, bias doesn't really affect uh, cases. It's when you get those really tricky ones, the really decomposed person, let's mm -hmm. say, that that's when it starts to, to really play a part in our casework. 
And then the third area is with the interpretation of results. And this is a bit of a tricky one because some of the things, I think you mentioned this before, some of the things that aren't relevant at the choosing of the tests or the analytical stage may actually be relevant at the interpretation, like things like age, even things like ethnicity can be relevant, different populations metabolize different drugs differently and so on. So some of those things which you would normally think of as not relevant information may become relevant in the interpretation. Yeah, so there's two things about interpretation. So I don't advocate people not having information at this point, like I think they should have the information. The first thing is we can't necessarily assume that everything we're told is true, right? So that's not because people blatantly lie. It's just because sometimes information changes and the police get new information. And they, they don't always tell us that they've had new information. So we have to be a bit careful about the information that we use. The second thing is it's not always clear to the person who reads the report. So that might be the coroner, the judge, the jury, that what we knew at the time. Right. So I think it's really important that we start to say what information we had access to when we made this decision so that they can see what we knew rather than assuming that it's a purely scientific decision. So if we're going to use the context, then I think we need to own that and put in the report that we we knew this about the case. or We've used this information about the case. And then the third thing is really to think about there's often more than one plausible explanation for tox results, which is, like I said at the beginning, is why I like the field. But it's not always clear to the person reading the report that that's the case. So we'll tend to go with one that might and we might be nudged into that one by the context. But I think it's really important that we either put the alternatives in or at least say there there is a possibility that there is another explanation for this. And then if the person wants to pursue that, they can phone you and talk about it. Because the problem is, if it's a really complex case, you're going to have so many if, buts and maybes. The report's going to be massive. You know, people aren't going to read it yeah. properly. So some, sometimes it's appropriate to put it in. Sometimes it might be better just to say, look, there are other explanations for these results. So they're the big things. It's, it's fine to use it, but be open about the fact that you've used it. And then also make it clear that there could be an alternative explanation for the results. And there is no specific document that tells us exactly what to do at the moment. Uh, maybe there will be more specific guidelines drawn up. Some standards do have some indicators about how we should treat certain cases, but at the moment, I don't think there's any specific document or guidance that we should be applying to, do you think? No, I mean, um, ISO 17025 now says your work has to be free from bias, but it doesn't actually go into any detail about how you might want to do that because, you know, it's a very generic um, thing for testing laboratories. There was something that came out in the UK by the Forensic Science Regulator a few years ago um, talking about bias, but again, it was it was aimed at everybody's different disciplines. So it wasn't specifically um, aimed at toxicologists, but there is there are sources of information out there that you can look at if you want some ideas or you want some you know sense of how to write a policy and that kind of thing. So there's no specific uh, standard or guideline, but have you observed in labs, you know, over the years that you've been studying it, a change in their approach, uh, things that have they've been putting in place? Yes, I have. So, like I say, the, the sort of change to broad screening has kind of naturally reduced a lot of those decisions that can have bias in them. And then the other thing is that different labs work differently. So, in some places, it will be the, the same person who makes the decisions at the beginning, and then they follow the case all the way through and they report it at the end. And what I've noticed is that now people are introducing systems that are perhaps more efficient, where you have, you know, some people making all the decisions in all the cases that come in this week, and then different people writing it up at the end. And I think that having 
a certain set of people making all the decisions at the beginning makes it more consistent rather than having it kind of done by one person who's got a bit of a bee in their bonnet about this drug or they, you know, they've got this experience <laughs> with that or whatever. Whereas if you can have a more consistent approach with the same people making the decisions, that's something I've observed is changing. And I think it was really brought in for efficiency reasons rather than to combat bias, but it's another one of those things that does you a favor um, in more than one way. So what kind of strategies would you recommend to a laboratory though? If you were going into a laboratory who say they wanted your help, you know, setting up some kind of policy for cognitive bias, what would you be recommending to them to do? So the first thing is that is awareness, right? So awareness doesn't solve the problem, but it's a huge step. So to make sure everybody is aware um, that bias is a problem, organize some training, organize, you know, someone to come and talk about it. People from other fields are really good to come and talk about it because they're other forensic scientists. So they, they kind of got really valuable experience. So get someone in to do some training, then start looking at your processes, have a really honest look at your processes and say, where are we using information currently? Do we need to be using information at all of these points? Is there anything really simple we can do? So using a barcode instead of a name on sample is a really simple thing that you can do because you can actually infer quite a bit from someone's name. If you think about it, you can infer often something about their age, perhaps their ethnicity. So actually not having their name, and if the case is really high profile and there's all the stuff in the media about it and you see their name, then that's not helpful either. So just using a barcode is a really simple thing. Uh, restricting access in the lab to people, uh, to information, uh, contextual information, just say, look, you're here to, to apply this, this criteria consistently. Um, and then the information is available at the end to the person doing the reporting and it's available at the beginning to the person making the decisions. As I said, make people own the stuff that, that they decide, right? Make people sign it and date it and justify why they've made a decision. And that's a really easy thing you can do that doesn't involve a lot of disruption to your processes that will reduce bias because people have to be a bit more careful about the decisions that they make. And then once you've kind of come up with the steps you want to do, there's other things like blind peer review. So the person who reviews the interpretation doesn't have access to the, the circumstances. And that's a really good way of seeing if you've made a, um, a potentially biased decision. Once you've come up with things that will work for you and your lab, um, put it into a policy, have a policy. Because when you get into court, you might well be asked that question. Do you have a policy on cognitive bias? Why did you do this? And if you can say, it's like in any situation, if you can say, well, that's the SOP or that's the policy, it saves you getting hammered in court about um, you know, your bias decisions. The other thing is to do with communication. So writing down uh, what you're told by the police at any one time. So if the police phone up and give you a whole load of new stuff about the case, I mean, lots of people are really on top of this already, but, um, you know, writing down really good notes, exactly what you were told when, sign it and date it, because that may come up again in court. When were you told about this? When did you first find out about that? When did you know, could that have affected your decisions and so on? Whereas if you can say, well, actually, I didn't find out about it till this date and here's the proof. And I made this decision on this date, which was two weeks before. Again, it can get you out of trouble in court. I wonder about with that segregation of the decision making from say the laboratory staff, you know, they're doing the analysis, but someone else is making the decision about what mm -hmm. tests are required and, and how much sample to use for each test and, and that kind of thing. How do you then train staff in how to make those decisions? Because part of showing them, this is how I'm making the decision. That's part of their training. And eventually they might be the one who's making the decision. Yeah. I think you just brought up a point that I forgot to mention actually, which is that um, you a lot of labs have like a big personality in there who will... Um, Peter's our big will, personality. That's right. <laughs> who will often um, 
I wouldn't like to say impose, but they will often kind of say, this is this is the way I was trained to do it. And this is the decision I would make. So this is the decision you need to make, you know, rather than saying, is the decision that you've made reasonable, given what you know, they will say, you should have made this decision, because this is a decision that I would have made. So kind of being honest about their culture in your lab is really important when it comes to training. So are you just, is the same person training everybody and giving and kind of giving them all the same way of thinking, or different people who come from different experiences different backgrounds are they all involved in the training so kind of having everybody involved in that is really important and also having and kind of talked about this already with our GHB having really clear policies about when you do something and when you don't um, is a really good way to train people and then say well if you're not sure then come and ask rather than just uh, make a, a bias a quick biased decision because we also know that people who have to who are under time pressure make more biased decisions and people who are hungry make more bias decisions so more chocolate is better in the lab because it reduces bias we should all have a policy of afternoon tea the boss brings afternoon yeah. tea into the lab <laughs> that's interesting you say about the influence of may not be a big person it may be just the the senior person in the laboratory because if you've got a, a question they're the person you're always going to go to because they're just yeah. they're the decision maker so it's um not just for cognitive bias reasons that you would look at this structure and any problems you might have in your lab, it's for, for other reasons as well. The way that you do your whole toxicology work is going to be yeah. influenced by them. Definitely. And if you've got a culture where, you know, it's not acceptable for a junior scientist to question the scientific decision of someone more senior, that's really problematic because that's kind of how we make progress in science, right? We get new people coming into the field who have new ideas and they try and disrupt things. And then people who are more established often don't really like it. Um, and you've got to be careful not to develop that in your in your lab where actually it's my way or the highway kind of thing and um how dare you question this judgment of mine because i've been doing this job and i've heard this i've been doing this job longer than you you know my decision is better than yours and, it, and that shouldn't be the case you know as scientists we should be able to respect each other's scientific decisions you also kind of have another problem where you have people who are too pally you know if you have people who are really good friends have been working together for a really long time that scientific challenge can be lost there as well so it's not necessarily about like differences in, in power, if you like, it can be a problem if you've got people who just don't want to disagree with each other because they're very friendly and they think in the same sort of way. It's ironic that um, what you were saying before, time pressures can lead to more cognitive bias because some of the measures that are recommended to bring in to deal with cognitive bias, it can be fairly time consuming and can perhaps cause more time pressures, which then can lead to more cognitive bias. It's tricky for laboratories who are always facing more and more pressure to become more efficient to introduce mm. measures which are going to slow them down. Yeah. And that's why I always say, like, it's not my job to tell you what to do in your lab. You've got to find something that is going to work for you in your process and isn't going to slow you down massively. But then I would say, you know, go back to the person who gives you the cases and say, well, would you like a biased decision quickly? Or would you like an unbiased decision that's more considered mm. um, and see what they say to that? This is the kind of thing where I feel like Conferences like the TF conference are great places for scientists to talk behind the scenes, you know, not necessarily the talks that are given from the front, but just chatting about these things, which people may not like to necessarily expose themselves or their own labs mm. in public, but you can have these kind of private discussions and, and try and think through some of these issues together. I think that's a really valuable part of this whole learning to cope with cognitive bias. Yeah. When I um, talked at TF in 2019 in Birmingham, um, I had a lot of people who texted me kind of on the on the app thing, on the quiet saying, can I have a copy of your slides? Because I'd like to talk to this 
to my um, toxicologist about it. So a lot of people that, like you said, they didn't really want to kind of openly talk about it, but they they were interested and they did want to kind of pursue it. So lots of different labs contacted me, which was really nice um, to see. It's encouraging to hear. And hopefully it will be something that we become more open to, as you say, you know, forensic scientists in general and maybe toxicologists as well have been a little bit resistant to the idea that we might be biased because we're scientists, we're trained to be objective. Mm-hmm. But uh, hopefully, you know, there's quite a lot of papers coming out about this now and it is becoming part of the conversation more and more. So hopefully that will lead to a more openness and we can have these frank discussions, you know, looking at ourselves critically. I think I think that's a good thing. It can only help to improve things. Mm-hmm. And we're in talks, it's interesting because we're, we've been traditionally quite keen to to do um to change in a way that will um make things more efficient so there's new machines we're quite good at embracing them new ways of doing things but then when it comes to things like changing the way we interpret something or bias we're kind of a bit slower to to take that on because we think oh maybe this is just going to be a lot of hassle it's going to slow things down and, and so on so we're not resistant to change as a field we're just a bit resistant in this particular area well, if you're listening out there and your lab doesn't have any uh, policy on cognitive bias or it's not something you've thought about, I guess the first thing is to just take one step in the right direction, right, Hillary? Put put something yeah. in place. Look at your processes. See what mm-hmm. where the risk might lie. Yeah. And um, um, I've done quite a few talks already to different labs, but if you would like me to come and do a talk on Zoom for your lab, I'm very happy to do that. Great. Well, we'll put Hillary's uh, contact details in the show notes. Thanks very much for joining us, Hilary. It's been a really informative discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And if you want to contact us, you can email us at toxpod at tf.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.